Hello there, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. Financial collapses have been at the heart of all major economic crises of capitalism since its inception. As the economic system engages in expansion, geographic markets, new inventions, innovations, new products or technologies, the banking system creates credit, fueling a speculative boom, which eventually collapses. This occurred famously in 1929 and in 2008, but there have been many other occasions in the history of the system. Financial crises occurred across the length and breadth of capitalism. Take only some of the events of the closing decade of the 19th century, for example. 1890, the near failure of Bering's bank led to the Latin American financial crisis. 1893, overextension of United States railway building and corrupt financing provoked bank failures. 1893, the Australian banking crisis. 1896, United States economic depression caused by a drop in silver reserves. Things are even worse 100 years later. Take some of the crashes of the 1990s, for example. 1990, Japanese overvalued asset prices collapsed. 1991, Nordic banking crisis, leading to recession. 1992, speculative attacks on currencies in the European exchange rate mechanism. 1994, Mexican economic crisis, default on the Mexican debt. 1997, devaluations and banking crises across Asia. 1998, Russian financial crisis. 1999, collapse of hedge fund long-term capital management using supposed advanced leverage techniques. After the Wall Street stock collapse in 1929, many banks failed and the depression spread from the United States to other parts of the globe. In response, the United States government in 1933 implemented extensive banking reform embodied in the Glass-Steagall Act, which held the banking system in place for 40 years with comparative stability. This was because it kept the finance sector in check. In the 1990s, these regulations were modified and in 1999, the Act was repealed. Ironically, it was argued by the banking system itself that the lifting of these regulations would make banks safer since they could diversify risks. CDOs, collateralised debt obligations, were the vehicle that epitomised this financial philosophy and they had major responsibility for the 2007-08 financial crash. Far from decreasing risk, they did the opposite. Preceding this, in the 1980s, there had been the Big Bang in finance, whereby the digital revolution was embraced by major finance centres, starting with New York and London. The new technologies fuelled the speed, widespread use and easy access to financial markets. Barriers to entry collapsed. The impact of the digital revolution was experienced not only in finance, but increasingly in every section of the economy and society. This combination of deregulation in finance plus technological transformation of the economy lets a new Pandora out of her confinement. The power, fascination and dangers 
of unleashed financial markets. These had been increasingly deregulated since the 1980s, each stage of which diminished the operation of the Glass-Steagall Act, which extended beyond America and certainly to Great Britain, by which the commercial investment and insurance arms of any financial institution had been kept separate. The first decade of this century is littered with financial crises. The year 2000, the Turkish and then Argentine financial crises, and then the 2001 dot-com bubble collapse, all being harbingers of this severe storm to come. In 2007-8, the great financial crisis itself, the GFC, exposed the manic nature of the boom in mortgages and stock prices, underneath which was the great shadow of speculation, with all its corruption and chaos. Behind this vast bubble lay the central banks, chief agents of the governments, which allowed and encouraged the expansion of credit, while the governments themselves deregulated the financial markets, believing, as is common in booms, that this time it is different. This time there would be no crash. That science, new inventions, productivity, human ingenuity and so on, would maintain the expansion. And yet, time and time again, the crash arrives. The illusion generated in each speculative boom is pervasive, intense, hypnotic and very convincing. Greed overcomes reason. Catastrophe follows hubris. The present fascination with the financial markets has not always been the case. And there are famous examples in the heart of capitalism, America, where even its presidents have realised the great danger to democracy of the financial system. Thomas Jefferson, who was the first Secretary of State, the second Vice President and the third President of the United States, is quoted as writing, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, the banks and corporations will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. And the issuing power of currency shall be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. Andrew Jackson was the seventh president of the United States from 1829 to 1837. He was commander of the American forces at the Battle of New Orleans against the British in 1815 and was famous for his formulation of Jacksonian democracy. He opposed entrenched banking interests and the bailout of the financial system. He had witnessed the Panic of 1819, as it was called, the first major peacetime financial crisis in the United States. A severe recession followed until 1921. He and many others blamed this on one of the major banks, which had speculated in purchase and sales of public lands. This had been fuelled by unrestrained issue of paper money. There were subsequent extensive bankruptcies, large-scale unemployment and great resentment against banking and business interests, and there was a call for control of banking speculation by federal government. By 1832, in Jackson's administration, the struggle between banking interests and central government was a major national issue. 
Jackson is quoted as saying in 1836, I am convinced that you have used the funds of the bank to speculate in the breadstuffs of the country. When you won, you divided the profits amongst you, and when you lost, you charged it to the bank. You tell me that if I take the deposits from the bank and annul its charter, I shall ruin 10,000 families. This may be true, gentlemen, but that is your sin. Should I let you go on, you would ruin 50,000 families, and that would be my sin. You are a den of vipers and thieves. That's Jackson to the banking community, delivered in Congress. Andrew Jackson established a free market, but long-standing, hard money policy in the United States. What a lamentable contrast with a long line of modern presidents of the United States, as well as heads and ministers of many other countries, who are sycophants of the financial system, totally support soft or loose monetary policy, so as to finance extraordinary debt structures. Well, that is because they are part of it. So many of them, when they leave their political offices, join the very well-paid ranks of the financial institutions. The credit crunch of 2007-8 was made possible by the unregulated, reckless expansion of money supply and credit in the lead-up to that collapse. The deregulation of the financial system, combined with the communications and digital revolution, expanded enormously the economic and trading potentialities of the banking and the shadow banking system. The financial system and the central banks both fostered and stimulated the inflationary boom, which was especially evident in housing and share prices and led to an inevitable collapse of that bubble in 2007-8. The trading and gambling operations of much of the banking system had become a type of casino capitalism and it is a scandal that so much of it, with some exceptions, has not come under criminal investigation. Subsequent policies of quantitative easing in the United States and Europe have simply propped up and hollowed out the economy and these policies, as in Japan, have become increasingly ineffective. This has been manifest in the stagnation of world productivity during the last decade. However, some very high functionaries in the banking system do realise the great dangers of the present situation. Mark Carney, recent Governor of the Bank of England, addressed a city conference in 2014. The city, by the way, is a term for the Financial District of London. He expressed great concern that the basic social contract was breaking down amidst growing inequality and that capitalism was doomed unless it had proper ethical standards. Prosperity requires not just investment in economic capital but investment in social capital. He warned that capitalism is at the risk of destroying itself unless bankers realise they have an obligation to create a fairer society. Social capital refers to the networks of relationships among people who live and work in a particular society, enabling that society to function effectively. Carney described banking operations as a heads-I-win-tails-you-lose system, with personal gain being the main and often only interest pursued by bankers. 
he said that many traders failed to meet ethical standards. He advocated professional ostracism for those who did not. With respect to city behaviour in the run-up to the GFC, Great Financial Crash, Carney said market radicalism and light-touch regulation had eroded fair capitalism, while scandals such as the rigging of the LIBOR markets had undermined trust in the financial system. Quote, just as any revolution eats its children, unchecked market fundamentalism can devour the social capital essential for the long-term dynamism of capitalism itself. To counteract this tendency, individuals and their firms must have a sense of their responsibilities for the broader system. All ideologies are prone to extremes, he continued. Capitalism loses its sense of moderation when the belief in the power of the market enters the realm of faith. In the decades prior to the crisis, such radicalism came to dominate economic ideas and became a pattern of social behaviour, he observes. The scandals highlight, he maintained, a malaise in corners of finance that must be remedied. Many banks have rightly developed codes of ethics or business principles, but have all their traders absorbed their meaning. He said that the G20 and international regulators on the Financial Stability Board were working to resolve the issues of financial institutions that were too big to fail, a problem which left taxpayers with a huge bill at the onset of the crisis in 2008. Perhaps the most severe blow to the public trust was the revelation that there were scores of too-big-to-fail institutions operating at the heart of finance. Bankers made enormous sums in the run-up to the crisis, he says, and were often well compensated after it hit. In turn, taxpayers picked up the tab for their failures. He said one of the lessons of the crisis was that compensation schemes that delivered large bonuses for short-term returns encouraged individuals to take on too much long-term risk. In short, the present was overvalued and the future heavily discounted. Well, yes to all the above and congratulations to Mark Carney for saying it. These are good words. However, the global financial system has nevertheless been out of control before and after the 2008 GFC. And it has been aided and abetted by governments and central bank policy. Unfortunately, there is hardly anyone explaining this to the population at large who have become besotted by political correctness, entertainments, gadgets and their aggrieved sense of identities in the postmodern world and are deprived of any explanations for what is happening to the foundation of their material well-being and upon which they are totally dependent, the economic and financial system. This is certainly not helped by an economic profession and financial press largely unable to provide insight and guidance on these essential matters. We are in a stock market mania, perhaps the biggest of all time, fuelled by central bank-induced liquidity and continuous stimulus from governments, which have created an artificial recovery and pushed different asset valuations to unsustainable levels. This is a bubble created by central bankers. The central banks, especially the United States Federal Reserve, the Fed, 
have been the market loss backstopper. That is, they bail out. Successfully pushing asset markets to new heights, not least the stock market. This has been occurring on a massive scale since 2008 and is at the expense of the general population. Let's examine these series of events. In the GFC of 2007-8, the manipulation of interest rates, which had been normal monetary policy, became ineffective. More drastic action was needed. The plan was to buy assets from the secondary market, and this became known as quantitative easing, or QE. The Bank of Japan ran a similar programme between 2001 and 2006. In round one of QE, in November 2008, the Fed bought various mortgage-backed securities which were in trouble. In 2009, the programme included purchases of United States Treasury debt. So governments, through central banks, begin to buy their own debts. They also underpinned the mortgage industry, which needed to be corrected, not encouraged. This message that central banks will backstop and is bail out any too-big-to-fail part of the financial system was received loud and clear by market participants. The GFC produced a serious global recession, but Chinese leaders expanded a massive infrastructure programme that lifted the world economy out of deep recession. This was created by the Chinese banks, obeying orders of the Chinese Communist Party. Their bank loans doubled in one year. Between 2007 and 2015, 63% of all new money created globally came from China, and most of this increase was created by Chinese commercial banks, that is, high street banks. Meanwhile, government or central bank bailouts increased in the rest of the world in numbers and scale. In 2010, the Bank of Japan started to buy exchange-traded funds, ETFs, linked to the Japanese stock market. So, central banks are now backstopping speculative activity on stock exchanges. In 2012, the European Central Bank began outright money transactions to prevent the rise in sovereign yields in the Eurozone. Sovereign yields are the yields on the debt issued by individual countries. That is, the interest payments they have to pay for their debt. So now, central banks are backstopping the unpayable debts of countries whose budgets and lending was out of control. In 2015, the Chinese economy became unstable. So now the authorities began to bail out the shadow banking sector. This led to an enormous expansion of credit. In 2017, global central banks pushed over $2 trillion, $2,000 billion, central bank liquidity into the global markets, mostly through asset purchase programmes. So now the government and central banks are lending or creating extraordinary quantities of money and pushing it into their economies. These are unprecedented levels of injection. By this time, the global central banks have long been flying blind and are firefighting, moving from one potential disaster to another. This is a suppressed financial crisis and the bailouts, debts, monetary creations 
and injections are only pumping up an ever more unstable structure which is becoming more prone to collapse and failure. In 2018, the People's Bank of China started to support the domestic banking sector by injecting hundreds of billions worth of dollars of liquidity into the system to stop a run on the weaker banks. Here, a generalised banking collapse is feared. China, with its huge credit and money creations and equally serious debt structure, the national debt stands at around 250% of GDP, like America, has a day of reckoning to come. In January 2019, following market turbulence, the Fed reversed position from promising to raise interest rates and cutting back on QE. It pivoted and returned to very low interest rates. Later in the year, interest rates were cut even further and other central banks globally followed suit. The European Central Bank, the ECB, pushed rates further into negative territory and restarted its QE programme. So now the financial crisis is not only dictating policy to the central banks, but is forcing them to reverse position. The same can be witnessed in the European Union. In September 2019, despite all these desperate efforts, the repo markets, the repurchase agreement markets, froze. This is another very short-term market for institutional lending, often overnight. Forcing the Fed to intervene in this market for the first time since 2009. So here we have the United States Central Bank moving into practically any corner of the financial markets with unlimited support to bail out any operation, no matter how suspect they may be. In March 2020, after the pandemic struck, United States short-term bonds, for example the short-term lending on which cities and states rely, became very expensive as buyers of this debt disappeared from key parts of the United States capital markets. This spread to include the corporate and fixed income and even treasury markets. Treasury markets are those by which the government borrows. Corporate, by which corporations borrow. Here we have a major signal that an extreme crisis is about to break. The debt market upon which the whole of the United States' debt-ridden economy is based, began to disappear. Few institutions wished to lend. It was too risky. So we see that national government itself, through United States treasuries, and local government, through city and state debts, are in the same dire financial hole as the other parts of the financial system. They are embroiled together and their answer is more money creation or lending but the lending is drying up so the last resort is money creation the stored up potential for later inflation and even hyperinflation is now inbuilt the irresponsible road of debt money creation and speculation leads to ruin the panic in March 2020 spread to stock markets. The Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged by 12.9%, its worst one-day fall since 1987. 
So, predictably, the Fed announced it would add 500 billion, half a trillion dollars, immediately into the repo markets and 1 trillion into corporate debt market. Buying up corporate debts, giving this money to the corporations who wish to borrow, and not always for productive purposes. For example, a lot of the borrowing has gone into the buying up of their own shares, that is, of their own companies, thus increasing share performance and therefore the bonuses of top management. In other words, by either creating new money or lending it, the government would then prop up these markets. The ECB, the European Central Bank, announced that it would buy 700 billion euros worth of bonds and securities at this time. The Fed announced that it would create a lending facility to support money market mutual funds spreading out into other parts of the financial system. Other central banks across the globe launched similar support operations. In 2020, the European Central Bank for the first time issued a European bond to create a pandemic emergency fund for which large grants as well as cheap loans are given to European Union countries hit by the pandemic. However, the real pressure is from Italy and Spain, who are threatening to leave the EU. So once again, we see the facade of finance being used to cover fundamental splits in the economic, political and social system. In March 2021, at the time of writing, the US Treasury market is once again in deep trouble. Buyers for this debt have once again evaporated. Government bonds or treasuries are the major lending facilities for governments. The United States boasts that it has the most liquid treasury market in the world, which means that treasury bills, government debt, can be bought and sold with great ease and with no danger of a default. This is an empty boast. The United States national debt is a $21 trillion market. This, it so happens, is the same figure as its total yearly output, which is roughly a quarter of the world's annual output. If the United States' debt-raising capacity fails, its economy will collapse. It will not be able to pay for government services, police, hospitals, schools and infrastructure. The government will meet this emergency by printing more and more money, thus leading inevitably to hyperinflation. Anarchy and social destruction such as America has never seen will make recent disturbing events, such as the storming of the capital, appear for what they are, harbingers of the storm to come. The rest of the world cannot escape the contagion of this catastrophe. The United States and the governments of many of the major economies of the world are facing a crisis of unprecedented proportions and walking blindly towards a precipice. Their colossal and increasing debt mountain, their speculative excesses, their stock markets so disconnected from economic reality, and above all their governments so incapable and unwilling to control the monster they have reared and become mesmerised by, have created the mother of all economic nightmares, the financial crisis. The present situation is that the major economies are not only hiding their chronic economic difficulties behind a financial facade of money creation and debt, They are also hiding their financial chaos and instability behind the same facade. 
You may ask then, where is this infamous financial crisis that is so feared? If you have courageously got thus far in this podcast, the answer is no surprise. We are already in it and have been so for a long time, but its true force is yet to be revealed. <laughs>